I had the very great pleasure of being in two near-death incidents on the plane. Well, they weren't. I'm exaggerating. But it, but it was a, it was a very windy landing into Salt Lake City uh, yesterday, and uh, therefore I missed the West Brom game. I'm thinking I had the better thing. Um, on balance, I'd rather not nearly die in a plane crash, but it's close. Um, certainly, it was a bit like watching a car crash, watching United's performance. And I mean, have you seen any of it? Have you managed to get? Have you have you wasted any of your precious life watching any of the highlights of this game? No, I haven't seen a minute of it. I, uh, I, it was just a turnaround in, in Salt Lake and I'm now in California and uh, I had a dinner last night and then uh, couldn't keep my eyes open. Well, uh, watching the game would not have helped you keep your eyes open. I mean, oh. two weeks ago we recorded a podcast which was full of kind of gloom and doom. Then we had really kind of joyful, but, you know... Joyful with Caveats podcast last week. I don't know what to say about this game that isn't hugely depressing. Um, my old boss sent me an email after the game saying he'd happily play, pay for Jose's plane ticket to PSG at this point. And it was hard not to feel like that after the game. I mean, the players were an absolute shambles, a disgrace. Like, genuinely, this game turned me into a reactionary, kind of wanting to shout on my telly, how much are you being paid and this is what you're serving up? You know, is that kind of really reductive analysis. But it was atrocious. So, West Brom set up with, essentially most of the time, eight to ten men behind the ball when United had possession. And United, as we've seen so many times in the Van Halen in also the Mourinho era, although less so. This was pure Van Hal. Couldn't find a way through. Um, Pogba, playing in his preferred 4-3-3, awful. Like, hardly ever ahead of the ball. Wasteful on the ball. Just almost like last week had gone to his head or something. Just, just terrible. Or... Actually, more likely, this is kind of a reversion to type to an extent because of what Mourinho's done to his overall confidence. And so he's not really able to handle his himself at the moment. But yeah, dropping deep to pick up the ball off the defenders, even though it's, you know, Matic and Herrera are both there, supposed to do his running for him. We're not seeing him ahead of the ball nearly often enough. Um, not the only player who played badly. All the midfielders, in fact, were dreadful. So I, I mentioned West Brom playing eight to ten men behind the ball. That didn't stop United looking whatever the opposite of press resistant is. Completely non-resistant to the mildest suggestion of a press. Just turning over possession in midfield. West Brom counter like West Brom had they won the game. I don't I haven't looked at the XG, but just from the eye test, West Brom fully deserved to win that game. Not They didn't have the lion's share of possession by any stretch of the imagination, but Ben Foster made one good save um, and De Gea made one good save in the first half and West Brom had just... They just looked more dangerous than United. On the Touchline Fracker podcast, uh, somebody said expensive West Brom got beat by actual West Brom, which, ouch. Like, <laughs> wow. Yes. Um it was. They, they've got a pretty good record against United in recent years. West Brom, yeah, been causing us all kinds of problems. Yeah, um, I mean, look, it's. it's uh, I haven't seen the game, so obviously can't comment on that. But it's pretty extraordinary, given the performance in the second half last week, given the high that everybody was on, and the fact that Jose talked about there being no complacency and they've tried, worked against it. Um, for United to come out with a performance like this against the bottom side, who haven't got a manager. 
you know, even if they go and park the bus and, you know, and, and fair play to West Brom for parking the bus, what else were they going to do? Mm. And and they parked the bus with a bit of intent to counterattack as well, which got right. got them rewards. Right. I think the the corner came from a counterattack. Oh, what a surprise! United conceded from a corner. Like you know, uh, Lukaku lost his man. I thought um, there's generally awful organisation all round in the box for the corner. It's just just pathetic. That's the only way I could describe it. And Mourinho. I realised that the thing that crossed the line for me with all three of our last managers hasn't been the performances on the pitch, although they were dismal. The thing that really gets to me is what they say afterwards. Like, that's the thing that really breaks me. In Moyes, like, we talked about it ad nauseum, the extent to which he mismanaged the public image. And Van Gaal, having sort of talked about building a championship-winning side in his opening press conference, then kind of massively playing down expectations in his second season. And Mourinho, after this game, was just, it was just foul. How many times in his post-match press conference did he say he'd won eight championships? There's four or yeah, five mentions. And, and that is pathetic. He said, I know how to win, but I don't play. Well, by the way, as a player, you didn't make it. Um, that's why you don't didn't play. But if you knew how to win, he said all <laughs> week, you know, like you said, he was talking about trying to manage the complacency. Well, in the post-match press conference, all he did was say, oh, yeah, the players were too happy after last week. That's why they lost this week. Yeah, but, but he talked job. about that beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's in, look, I, I, um, I, I haven't, you know, obviously didn't see the game. So I don't know how much, what percentage of this was complacency by the players, um, which is, uh, you know, obviously unacceptable if you're a Manchester United player. Um, and uh, I'd say the 75% of my Twitter timeline seem to be blaming the players. Um, but Jesse never takes responsibility. I mean, the basics of, of uh, you know, two years into the the, the, the job now, uh, United shouldn't be conceding quite so many goals from corners. Uh, the structure of the team shouldn't be changing every week, um, seemingly on the basis that he doesn't know exactly what his best team is yet. The players should not have a question about motivation. Clearly, that is the manager's job. So um, there are there are obviously a whole bunch of questions that can be pointed at Jose, and and he never seems willing to accept that. And the kind of um, revisionism of of pointing back to his trophies and saying, "Oh, look, it was three years ago, my last title, not twenty years ago." Uh, yeah, slide digger, Arsene Wenger, there, maybe, perhaps. Um, um, it's, it's it's just kind of pointless because. You know, this is the United side that will probably finish second, or you know, maybe not if we have more performances like this, I guess. Um, and uh, and he did win two trophies last year. We could well win an FA Cup final, we shot at a trophy there. So it's progress, um, but it's uh, it's progress in a pretty um, ugly and sometimes dispiriting fashion, it seems. Yeah, and, and oh, just the, you know... One of the managers, people blaming the players, I, I get it. The players should perhaps take more responsibility. And maybe in the second half against City, we saw what happens when this team does take responsibility for its own performance, because that's generally the gist of what's come out. But surely an absolutely fundamental cornerstone of a manager's job is to build the team's collective mentality. That, that I mean, we... We United fans, we saw what happened when you have a manager who can do that like no other. This is, this is, 
This is Mourinho's greatest failing in a lot of ways, is that he can't do it. He's never done it. He's done it for um, short periods of time, which he hasn't even done here. And he's done it with certain key players, but he's never managed to build lasting squad cohesion that he was a part of. And here we... No, that's right. And I wonder whether there isn't some kind of Napoleon complex here because of his failure as a player. And deep down, he uh, he actually resents some of these players, and that's why he feels the need to take them down a peg or two too well, frequently. Well, may, maybe it's that. I mean, he has often said, he's talked about his philosophy of management through conflict, and he's not the only high-powered yep. official who, you know, seeks to generate conflict to stir something. But I just think it's a particularly... Well, it's very evidently not a good way to build long-term success and loyalty. I mean, listen, the players' performances were way 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 below what they should have been in that game like the, and and whilst I can be kind of critical of Mourinho for his role in that which he would kind of assert that he doesn't have any role in that the players do have a degree of collective responsibility yeah. if it's true yeah, yeah. that they got so high after being beating city that they thought they were untouchable against west brom then fair enough but you know it was genuinely. I mean, if I was one of them, I would be really embarrassed about that performance. Like, yeah, but we've seen this a few times this season. I mean, this isn't isolated, is it? You know, the highs against some of the bigger sides. We talked last week about how actually United's record against the top six is now getting better. Yep, one point seven something points per game against the top six, so improving, and it was pretty bad under Mourinho. Um, and and then the lows, you know, severe other games where United have lost after big games. So there's definitely a problem there. Um, you know, for Mourinho, he thinks he's 100% of the players and he keeps telling everyone that. Um, but ultimately, he's, he's the man in charge. He's the man that has to um, develop the strategy, both for squad building and tactics um, and, and the patterns of play and has to get the most out of the players he's got. Um, and build players' confidence up and, and be a bit more multifaceted in how he manages players. But uh, so far, I'd say it's a sort of B-minus on that one. But I, I don't want to be, you know, I look, I, um, I think it's probably also fair to say, I don't know how many, there can't be too many managers who would help United move forward as quickly as Mourinho has, right? So um, from outside European places and absolutely nowhere to... Yeah probably finish second and maybe winning a third trophy in two seasons you know so there's definitely been progress for me is there's a constant uh, you know sort of incessant nagging at the in the back of my head that says I don't know whether Mourinho could take this lot much further you know if you cannot get good performances out of Pogba, Sanchez, Martial, Rashford, Massa, Lukaku on a weekly basis that's a big problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really valuable and important point that you made about about Mourinho in terms of how quickly the ship's been stabilised. There is a but there. It's not, I don't know how relevant it is because I don't know whether actually that caveat would still apply. But he's done that by spending absolutely eye-watering sums of money. Now, Van Gaal had a lot of money and he used it poorly. You know, I think... Um, Obviously, the numbers are astronomically bigger than Mourinho, but we've seen kind of record levels of transfer inflation. I think in terms of the kind of ballpark area of where, like the amounts being paid, Van Gaal was basically spending as much as Mourinho in terms of, you know, 
relative to the rest of the world, football world that summer. I'd, you know, you'd have to look up the data to see where that's true, but that would be my kind of instinctive feeling about it. So, you know, but but he has had huge money and he's bought a bunch of superstar players. Um, but you're right. He has, he did, he has brought about a great deal of change very quickly. And one last point about the West Brom game. So there's eight players in the side that had more than 50 passes in that game. That's how much of the ball United saw. And almost, well, the only ones of those players who aren't at 90% pass completion or better are Mata, uh, Young and Sanchez, who were all trying to be progressive with their passing, have all got kind of crosses and stuff in there that that are generally the kind of numbers that knock your pass completion percentage down. So, right. like we were rotating the ball, keeping the ball, like trying to pry, create chances. But there was a there was a horrible f- um, bluntness to United, and th- there is. You know, Martial and Rashford are both on the bench. Now, I'm not saying if either of those two had been on the pitch from the start, this game would have been different. Uh, but we talked about the 4-2-3-1-4-3-3 dilemma and all this kind of stuff. And I, and one of the things that was saying is against West Brom at home, you can absolutely play Pogba in a two-man midfield. And he absolutely could have done that, but he didn't. And it's hard to criticise him too much for that because everyone's been crying out for the 4-3-3 and it worked in that second half against City. So maybe he's just kind of trying to bed it in, get all the players used to it ahead of the semi-final. But when Pogba was hooked after 57 minutes, I mean, I've seen it argued that that was about kind of keeping him fresh and ready for next week. But given that that's like a long way and there's another game in between, it was hard not to see that as another punishment beating, you know. Mm. Yeah, where where does Mourinho go from here? I mean, it seems like he's going to be given lots of money in the summer. Um, United will definitely spend on two fullbacks, I'd assume. And and attacking fullbacks, useful attacking fullbacks would make a big difference to this side. Although, yep. you know, I think you could argue that Ashley Young has actually had a pretty decent season. I mean, Ashley, England's best left back, Young, TM. <laughs> Um, so, uh, but but you know, two attacking fullbacks will make a big difference against uh, you know, especially in a four-three-three system, and especially yep. with players like Mata and Sanchez inside, you want to cut inside all the time. Um, I mean, I guess he'll bring in another midfielder, but he has to be able to get the best out of a player like Paul Pogba. He, he has to be able to, otherwise, United can't progress, and it can't just be, or oh, we're going to bin him off and get some more functional player in because that's what Mourinho likes. So anyway, like, um, like there's, uh, I, I don't see how Mourinho wins a title for United, I have to say. And I'd love to eat my words on that in two years' time or something like that. Um, but uh, I would imagine he'll scorch the earth before we ever get there. Um, but we'll, we'll see. And let's hope United are able to pick it up for the Spurs game. Um, I guess the Bournemouth game doesn't really count much for much, but the Spurs game next weekend is is you know the biggest game of the season. Absolutely critical. Otherwise, United are going to finish the season with no trophies and and City winning the league and bloody Liverpool winning the European Cup. <laughs> um, the thing about Mourinho not winning the league with United that it's probably worth saying is I, I feel completely the same way about it but I wouldn't be surprised to be wrong given that this would be the first time Mourinho had ever had a job since since his kind of ascension to the level of a team that could potentially win the title so since Porto this would be the first job where he didn't win the title which that would be a kind of seismic shift especially given the resources at his disposal that really would indicate that he's properly yesterday's man and he's finished and it, it feels like that at the moment but we do know these things can change 
Um, but I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying I'm, I'm holding a caveat in reserve that actually it still wouldn't be that shocking if Jose Mourinho won a, won a league title, given, I don't know if you know this, Ed, but he's, uh, he's won eight championships. Really? Yeah. Eight? Eight? A little f- a tiny one. Perhaps we can get some T-shirts done with, you know, nine on them, just, just in waiting. I've, um, I've won. I've uh, one last point I wanted to make about the West Brom game. Lots of people criticising United for a lack of width in that game, but in the second half we started to go wide and hammered a whole bunch of crosses in. So somewhere around twenty crosses um, went in in that game, uh, and West Brom just dealt with them all day, every day. So like the idea that kind of getting out wide and banging in crosses was the way to stretch that defence was uh, pretty obviously not accurate although United's best chance did come I think from across the one save the one really good save that Foster made Mm. so um having stopped City from winning the title at their own place last weekend which everyone enjoyed thoroughly yeah uh we handed it to them on a plate City champions I guess that was always just a matter of time anyway um uh, and I guess if they were going to win it it being fairly meek with them not playing is a better way of doing it, but they've been lauding it up, including absolutely cringeworthy videos. <laughs> <laughs> just, just awful. Just truly corporatism at its worst. Mm. Um, but, but worthy champions, basically. They've, uh, they've been uh, significantly better than any other team in the league this season. Yeah, they've been significantly better than any other team in the league since 2008. I think it's probably fair to say Um, they are an absolutely superb side. And, you know, we can say they won it meekly by United losing, but they also won it by absolutely smashing Spurs at Wembley. Um, Yeah, they were completely dominant in that game. I mean, Spurs got back into it, but uh, um, uh, they were, yeah, they were extremely good value for that victory. Um, And I guess, uh, I guess, uh, you know, righted the 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 ship after the mini blip of losing to Liverpool twice and and to United. Interesting. Before the Spurs game, Pep talked about City not necessarily winning the league, as if the wheels were about to fall off. It was a, a strange motivational strategy, uh, but it seemed to work. I wonder with Pep whether it isn't just actually a an externalisation of his deepest fears because he's a nervous man, Pep Guardiola. Bold fraud that he is, <laughs> yeah. lucking his way to twenty-five titles or whatever he's got. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, no, they, they, that pass from De Bruyne to Sterling that was just offensive, offensively good pass. Um, but yeah, no, City are good. They won the league. They deserve to win the league. It was nice to stop them. It would have been much, much nicer not to then give it to them a week later by losing to the bottom team. I mean, oh, the banter era continues, as they say. Um, United are the... United are borderline as ridiculous as Arsenal. Not as bad as Arsenal, obviously. Clearly. I mean, Arsenal might finish behind Burnley. Yeah, but as... Given the momentum, it's quite quite possible, yeah. But as ridiculous... Um, Yes, it it is. is, Look, for... Since Fergie retired, this is now five seasons uh, without the title uh, since Fergie retired. And mm-hmm. uh, second will be the best place by some distance. Yep. Um, if if we finish second, it's definitely not guaranteed. Nope. It's a big if at this stage. Yeah. 
Um, and, uh, and, and during that time, about £700 million has been spent. So there has been investment. So I think what you can say is there's been, you know, rank bad management of the club. They managed to make uh, really huge amounts of income, um, some of it just because of the, of the globalisation uh, of football in the media market. So got fortunate with Champions League and, and Premier League TV rights, um, some of it riding the crest of, a, uh, of that globalisation in terms of branding and Real Madrid and Barcelona and Bayern Munich and Juve and a whole bunch of others done it too. And some of it, obviously, a very smart commercial strategy that has allowed United to continue to rake in piles and piles of money. But it's a club that's focused on that first and and uh, a winning team second, it seems. And um, I think uh, Oliver Kay in the Times is making the point today that, yes, Pep has spent you know, huge amounts of money, and he really has. But I think his hit rate, I and mean, it's not 100%, but I think his hit rate is a lot better than United's in terms of buying the right players for the right positions and fitting them into a team. Um, and, and that's that's why they're 16 points ahead of United. And this is like some money, but also spent better. This is also an uncomfortable thing, but but I think a huge reason that their hit rate is good is because Guardiola uh, develops players. You know, so it, you know their hit rate often looks really good because players who've struggled. I mean, Fabian Delph. He must have been on the book, so I can't imagine Guardiola bought him. But Fabian Delph has been a really important part of City's first team this season. Fabian Delph. And that's that's Pep. You know, he doesn't it doesn't work hundred percent of the time. There's certain players that he, you know, doesn't get to those levels. Or John Stones, it was sort of working earlier in the season and now he's out in the cold. But generally speaking, I think the hit rate isn't just about sensible acquisition, it's about what you do with those acquisitions once you've got them. And no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, um, flip around the uh, the managers. I mean, it's a it's a fun thought experiment, isn't it? And have Pep in charge of this squad of United players, and and Mourinho in charge of that squad of of City players. Would City be sixteen points ahead? I'm thinking absolutely not. No, I I, I think it's I think that is the the biggest argument that the people who are still rampantly pro Mourinho need to face up to. That it's that that's right then and there, and that's the argument. And those of us who are, you know, really frustrated with Mourinho probably need to face up to the argument that you mentioned earlier that he's brought about a level of change and and solidity and improvement of, in our performance levels overall very quickly. So, anyway, that is really enough of that. We've done we've done it to death, and there's like five or something more episodes till the end of the season where it's going to be relevant every week. So it's gonna. Sorry for retreading old coals. Have we got any Twitter questions? Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. If United lose to Spurs at the weekend, <laughs> we'll, we'll just do all. We're going to have to ramble on about the transfer market for five weeks in a row. The shortened transfer, mercifully shortened transfer market. All Twitter question episodes of the show every week from now to the end of the season if we lose to Spurs. Yeah, I mean, uh, top, top of the table. I mean, United's running is pretty, pretty decent, isn't it? And um, Well, does that uh, matter? We just lost to West now. Brom. Yeah, no, I know. I know, I know. Um, 71 points. Liverpool played a game more, 70 points. Spurs also 33 games, 67 points. Only five games to go and four for Liverpool. So, you know, you'd, you'd put the odds with United finishing second, but only just. And really the performance levels are going to have to increase significantly um, uh, above that against West Brom uh, in order for that to happen. And and like maybe second, third, and fourth doesn't matter. Though fourth is into a playoff. Yeah, fourth uh, matters. In the Champions. 
fourth matters, and maybe second or third doesn't matter, but Mourinho himself has made a big deal of that. He made a big deal of, of uh, being better than all the others. So uh, he's, uh, hmm, it could come back to bite him. Well, and also it's like, you know, there's a decent chance that it'll be Liverpool that finished above us. And that's always got to mean something, hasn't it, finishing above Liverpool? It definitely means something, especially if they, no, oh, no, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> what an absolutely ridiculous week in the Champions League. Just all over the shop when the the fact that um, Juventus got so close to overturning the uh, result just like Roma had done I mean that that is just, that was just baffling um, but of yeah course... I mean all, all of those all of those I mean I guess the Bayern um, Bayern uh, Sevilla tie was was fairly tight and, yeah um, um, but uh, yeah Juve massive comeback I, I thought Oliver got the decision but I don't see how he can do anything other than uh, give a penalty for that one, and then uh, and then you know, start abusing the referee. You're going to get a red card. So, yeah. um, and now his wife is being abused on Twitter. Lovely world nice. we've got, um, uh, but amazing comeback. Um, and uh, the Liverpool just completely outclassing City in both games weird. was uh, fascinating yeah. and weird. And, and then Roma with a stunning comeback against Barcelona, who are going to walk to La Liga this season. This is not a crappy Barcelona side. Well. Nor is it a vintage Barcelona side by any stretch of the imagination. It's a it's a Barcelona side that's easily good enough to win a La Liga side when no one else has quite done the business. Um, maybe it's a bit it's a bit sort of United twenty eleven this Barca side, although better than that, obviously. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo's penalty, like that's just it is an offensive level of self belief that allows a man to do that in those circumstances. Like he, he's just got special powers. Cristiano Ronaldo has special powers of execution, special powers of performance in the Champions League. Although his overall performance in this game is very poor, but especially absolutely world-beating powers in justifiably making everything about himself. Not just making everything about himself when it's not like he did when he took his top off in the four-one against Atletico um, in the final the other season. But this was really all about him, and he made it all about him, and that is kind of impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, a couple of interesting semis there, Liverpool versus Roma. Oh, Roma haven't conceded any goals at home this season, so that'll be uh, that'll be an interesting matchup with a Liverpool side that scored over 100 goals this season and and uh, most goals in the Champions League and, and, um, and Real Bayern, a uh, couple of giants. The most... Yeah, I need to be in there, don't they? This is what Mourinho's brought in for, to make us good enough so we are playing these big games. The Mo Salah derby. <laughs> um, let's take some Twitter questions, because I know we're, you're a bit pushed for time today, Ed. Let's do it, and there have been plenty. Uh, and we're actually recording a podcast, which is uh, you know, a good use of asking people to send us questions. <laughs> Wasn't it nice of Jose to give one matter a full match for once, ask La False number 12? <laughs> Be a friend of the show, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, will you be giving one matter full matches next season? That's a, that's perhaps a bigger question. Mm. I mean, I would love him to stay, but you could see how. I mean, and I think it was pretty dreadful against West Brom, but you could see how there have been plenty of games this season where our attacks looks a lot better balanced, as we've discussed ad nauseum with matter in the side. So it would be a loss in that sense, but in terms of squad balance. Um, you could argue that he is, uh, to a degree, surplus to requirements in that 
there's plenty of players who could take his place if he left, but I do think we'd lose something significant if we lost Matter. Mm. Simon Stevens, friend of the show, says, was it kind of funny in a dark, horrible way, like uh, the way Blue Velvet is a bit funny in the most horrible bits? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, one of my favourite films, Blue Velvet, as, as you uh, probably wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> uh, was it kind of, yes, it was. There was some kind of dark gallows humour irony to United beating City last weekend only to throw it away against West Brom. So, it was hilarious. I, I suppose so. It's very fun. Like, if you can't laugh at your team being bad, you know, it's it's silly, isn't it? And, and yeah. United are silly. Uh, Thomas Willoughby, another friend of the show, says, when will the nightmares end? I don't know, Tom. Don't know. <laughs> you just have to reconstruct the expectations of your dreams at this point, I think. Because I think there's a solid argument to say that the nightmare has ended. The nightmare ended the day that David Moyes left. And the rest of this has just been like a mildly bad dream ever since. Yeah. Um, also, Brian Fuentes, 16, B Fuentes, 16 on Twitter says, is this an automated tweet? Yes, it was. Uh, and then he follows up with, should uh, Jose put Luke Shaw on an incentive plan? Lose five pounds, you start the next game. I think Shaw's done. He'll be sold in the summer and we'll probably never see him again. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jose Mourinho should have done a lot of things with Luke Shaw but he hasn't done any of them also I think it's fair to say from everything that I've heard from behind the scenes sources Luke Shaw should have done a lot more too yeah Um, it was interesting middle of the season there were all those sort of um, I guess brief stories about how Shaw was the fittest man in the club and been working really hard and yeah, they had a, uh, apparently not. But um, um, United will move on and uh, we'll have him move on too. He's too good a player to blow his career. So I, I hope he doesn't and he uh, he finds a, a good home. Unfortunately, it means, you know, given his talent, that United will, you know, at least in theory, at least could well be spending millions and millions of pounds on an inferior player. Of course, if you can never get him on the pitch, then uh, he's, he's, you know, he's not the player you actually believe you have. Anyway. Uh, Man United 23 or at Man United 24 just to confuse us all on Twitter says come back Paul no I'm not sure what he means I'm not I'm to not, Twitter I'm, I'm I not, guess I'm not coming back my friend I love you but I'm not coming back uh, email me Yahoo72 on Twitter says why are we against teams well we haven't really been this season I mean I wouldn't I haven't got the fixture list up in front of me but I remember us beating a lot of people 4-0 plenty of people 2-0 like there's been a lot of like perfectly functional serviceable performances against bad teams this season so it's not a massive pattern it's just like a recurrent blip that that is a pattern in and of itself but it is not the only dominant pattern about United's performances against smaller teams this season especially no, no. And, and earlier in the season it was 4-0 FC wasn't it yeah Gosh, that seems like another lifetime. It really does. A whole bunch of people. What the hell was that? What the f- was that? What was that? What have I just seen? <laughs> honestly, How bad Ed, was that? Honestly, um, I know you didn't watch the game, right? But I can't stress this enough. It was appalling. Like it so, was. So, in a, in a ranking of post Fergie bad matches. And there have been some shockers. How high is this? Is it top five? I top mean, ten? Top one? It's, it's definitely not top one. It's definitely not Mitchelland away. Um, oh, Mitchelland away. Uh, it's probably better than Sheffield United at home, although we did actually win that match. Um, Middlesbrough at home in the League Cup. Remember that one? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Uh, no, not, no, Olympiacos away, that was yeah, pretty bad. Yeah, that was absolutely... Fulham at home, that was pretty bad. 82 crosses and all that. I mean, uh, it was worse than the severe performance, I think. It was as bad as the severe performance. Just, just really, really, really bad. Like, hardly created anything in spite of all of that possession. And like I said, every time we had the ball in midfield and they pressed us, we looked like we were going to lose it and turn over a massive chance mm. against the absolutely rubbish team. James Mayer, J Mayer 84 says, uh, do we have enough faith in Mourinho to let him continue or alienate some of our best talent? What happens in um, the summer if he wants to get rid we, of Pogba and Martial? We can't do it this again. Like he's got the backing of the club. We can't do this. Um, we can't do this again. We've done this every episode for the last four or five episodes. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> and we may have to do it for the next yeah, five yeah. Skip until it. the speculation <laughs> stops. Yeah not, yeah, not this question yeah. this week. Sorry, James. I think um, I, I am actually, I mean, I was being flippant earlier, but I think it's a very good move uh, to cut the transfer window down so there isn't moves post the start of the season. Um, of course, it's not the same elsewhere in Europe. So there could be uh, you know, a whole bunch of clubs trying to buy players from Europe, from the Premier League um, after the transfer window closes. But if, if all the European leagues eventually align, then we'll stop the nonsense of of uh, players trying to get pinched or bought or move after the the, uh, the season has actually started. So, yeah. yeah. Um, um, as, uh, what the F, what the... I, we have like 100 questions this week <laughs> and I'd say a good 50% of them involve an F-bomb uh, <laughs> about the performances. Um, Chris Pillay, one on Twitter, says, uh, most managers would play attractive winning football with the talent they have. Um, is United a bridge too far for Mourinho? I mean, I mean, it's like I don't know whether that's, that's fair to put it that way because look, he's managed and won titles um, with some of the biggest clubs in Europe, including Real Madrid. So, you know, it's clearly not a job that's too big for him. Can he play attractive winning football? He can play winning football. Can he play attractive football? Well, you know, that's sort of in the eye of the beholder. United are never going to play like Manchester City or Barcelona under Mourinho, though. But there is an argument to say that the Real Madrid job was too big for him. He was there for quite a long time and he did win a title against one of the best club sides of all time. Um, But he did salt the earth. He did split the dressing room. He did poison the Spanish national team (laughs) nearly. He did a lot of damage there and wasn't able to win the Champions League, which is the sort of minimum requirement of a Real Madrid manager. So I'm not saying his time at Madrid was a complete flop, but I, I think... You know, this is not an original thought. It's been said many times, but the teams where Mourinho has done best are teams where it is generally acceptable to the community that he represents that that team should be an underdog. So Porto, Inter, Chelsea, all happy to be the underdog on the big European stage. You know, United, Real Madrid, very much not. Uh, So I was uh, very happy to talk this week to Wayne Barton, United fan and uh, many of you will know him from the Twitter sphere. He's written uh, oh, five or six books on United now, and his latest one is just out called The Man Who Kept the Red Flag Flying. Uh, it's an autobiography of Jimmy Murphy, who, uh, of course, famously, famously had a, a significant role in United's youth and academy teams uh, during the 50s and 60s, 60s um, and also took over from uh, Matt Busby after the 58 crash. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Wayne Barton to the show. Um, uh, long time uh, 
sort of uh, online friend, I'd say. Um, and uh, uh, he's written a new book uh, on the great Jimmy Murphy called The Man Who Kept the Red Flag Flying High. And it's, uh, it's uh, what, your fifth or sixth book now? You did a um, uh, autobiographies of uh, Clayton Blackmore um, and Gordon Hill, uh, which I think did pretty well, and McDuxbury and, and one on... Uh, Fergie and uh, United mid seventies, huge collection of work behind you now. Yeah, a nice body, of, a varied body of work as well. You know, from different things. Danny Eaginbottom as well, who I think is the um, slightly biased, but I think he's the the premier pundit in in Britain at the moment. Um, yeah, so I've been fortunate to work with a lot of names across, I mean, the last 40, 50 years, really. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think Higginbottom is the uh, the best pundit uh, in any form of uh, British media at the moment. Very, very, very intelligent and um, certainly hasn't sort of become a parody of himself, which uh, some others may have done. Um, so, so tell me, um, what was the inspiration behind uh, the new book on on Jimmy Murphy? Obviously, a you know really important figure in United's history. Um, what prompted you to write this book now? Well, um, I w- one of the books that I re- I've written was the Fergus Fledglings book, and obviously that took in the complete era under Ferguson and, and the youth development I, from day one to the last day really uh, how that changed, how he changed and evolved with the times and at the same time I was working with Mick Duxbury on his book and we had a conversation one time where he was he was talking about a player's do that he was at and um, Jimmy had approached him, I, I mean Mick's not the most fashionable player but Mick, uh, Jimmy had approached him and said that he wouldn't look out of place in his in, in the babe side and he got really emotional when he was telling me that story and he never I mean there was I mean there's a lot of emotional points in in his life obviously every, everyone goes through them but that's the one time he really I could see him getting choked up about it and that stayed with me a little bit and then I was fortunate enough to interview Ari Gregg and I'd know it was one of those things where I, I sort of got hooked up to his grandson and I didn't have a reason for the interview or anything or a purpose. I, you know, there was no way or where I was going to use it, really. Um, yeah. But we ended up talking mostly about Jimmy. And these conversations happened around the same time, uh, you know, around the same time as me finishing the book as well. So I just thought, you know, there's a little bit more here to scratch the surface. I'm aware most... United fans are aware on it with the basics of Jimmy's story. But once I started scratching the surface on that, I thought, you know, I want to see if I can, if there's enough material, enough there fresh to, to justify writing a, a full book on it. And it quickly became apparent that there was. So, of course, Jimmy's most uh, associated, I guess, with the aftermath of the the Munich air disaster and his role in in steering the team in Samat's uh, absence, um, but also a, a significant um, a significant uh, part of United's youth development. So, you know, what what do you looking looking back now? What do you think your assessment of uh, Jimmy's importance to United during that period was? Um, Busby looked after the first team and. Jimmy basically ran everything below the first team, and that's not an overstatement. And and yet again, I'm I am slightly biased, and you know you do the research and you get involved in it, and you you tend to sort of think, well, his his fingerprints are on everything. But I mean, this is a guy who he was involved in the recruitment of the players. He was 
the one who's overseeing the day-to-day development of them in not only the youth team but the central league as well and he was the one who went to Busby and told them that these players were ready you know so he was involved in a massive part of these kids development um there was things like, you know, he would take them back to his house with his family and he had a big family, he had, you know, four or five kids and the um, the players would go back there. He, his, his kids, his, his son Nick often jokes that if he had a bed at Old Trafford, he would have slept there. He loved the club that much. Um, he absolutely, everything, he lived and breathed Manchester United. So, like you said, he, he's rightly mostly remembered for what happened after Munich, but before that, before everything that happened with the babes went through him anyway, and that's not to downplay Busby's importance with that, because once they went to the first team, he obviously polished them up and had them playing detractive football that they did, but everything in terms of the personality, you know, the the arrogance, their, their expression, their, you know, the, the togetherness and everything, that was all taught and, and embedded by Jimmy and and Bert Wally and the other coaches as well. But Jimmy was overseeing that as the sort of mastermind behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course the Jimmy Murphy Young Player of the Year Award uh, um, instigated after his, his death in the, the late 80s. Um, so w- what's the process you go through when thinking about writing a, a historical book? Obviously the other books that you've done on United Players they're all live and you can talk to them and dig into their story. And and obviously Jimmy's been gone for nearly 20 years now. So how did you approach writing this book? Um, what sort of sources did you use? Um, and was, was that a different process? Did you enjoy that in the way that you've you've done with your other books? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was very different and, and challenging but entertaining. I mean, I had the... I was working on it for four, four and a half years, really, all, all told. Um, yeah, I, first of all, you know, going to his family, getting interviews, talking to them about, you know, talking to as many members of the family as I could about what it was like as a person, as a father, as a grandfather, um, that sort of thing. How they saw him as a coach, their memories of him at, at the good and bad times, um, and in later life as well. Obviously, working with the different people I've been fortunate to, whenever I would do an interview, like say if I was doing it on the 74-75 book, which I did, I would sort of drop in questions about Jimmy to Tommy Doherty and everything like that. So I'd be picking up little bits along the way. And and sort of like I, I had an idea of how it was going to go. You've got the sort of obviously his early life, so try and do as much research as you can on that, which involved, you know, watching every documentary I could find my um, – find old newspaper clippings and everything like that, family records going up through all that, all all the old books, you know, everything that was like, I thought it was important as well because there are, obviously there's plenty of stuff published after Munich, but I thought the really interesting stuff was, you know, the, there was a lot of stuff published just before Munich, which I thought was really interesting because it painted a different picture, you know, like Busby's own recollections of, of how things were going at the time. So a lot of stuff like that, old newspaper clippings, like I already said, um, and there was, there was a lot of stuff, um, a lot of material there to actually work from. I, I was actually, one of the things that I was most interested in because it was a contemporary thing, and I, I was left with the impression that there was a lot of Jimmy's influence still remaining on the club, and I wanted to sort of dig deeper and see how true that was or whether that was, you know, again, just my bias coming through or my own 
this conclusion that I come to myself. So I, I made it um, a purpose to try and I knew that I could probably get an interview with Paul McGuinness because he's always been fairly forthcoming with stuff like that. I tried to, you know, reached out to Sir Alex Ferguson and for a long time I wasn't getting anywhere and then I, you know, managed to get an interview with him. So those two people I thought were very important to sort of paint the picture of the legacy that that he left, which I think is important in terms of educating modern supporters as well and, and myself because it was an education for myself in there to talk to these people and, you know, see is there anything there about how... Jimmy's um, methods and his coaching and his ideology and everything like that, how, how much of that was remaining on the club. And I was, even though, you know, I was leading it myself, I, I was leading with the questions and I had my own ideas and theories behind it. Their approach and their response absolutely blew me away, you know, in terms of how open they were about um, how deep his influence still ran on the club. So, there was a lot of material to work for, and obviously interviews with lots of players who were coached under him and everything like that, um, players who were scouted by him in later in later life. So there was a lot of material there, um, more than what I, I thought, because I'm reading the newspaper articles and everything like that, and I'm thinking, well, I, I, if this stuff was quite widely known at the time, why isn't his story more widely known you know because mm. everyone just sort, sort of dismisses it as the busby babes and, and jimmy's an afterthought and yeah it was crazy to me that it's not more widely known really yeah there's um there's a a, 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 a few historians i know and um one uh, one said that uh, if you really want the true story of what happened don't go to the major historical figure because the ceos or the presidents they're too polished about what they want to say it's the middleman. It's the uh, tier below. They're the people who really want to tell you the truth. And I, I don't know whether some of that came through um, in your interviews, but um, it, it's often the more colourful stories than the uh, the main man. But also, of course, the the one that doesn't capture the narrative, and it's probably why there aren't dozens of books about Jimmy Murphy before now. You, you talked a little bit about his legacy. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very different world now. Of course, youth football is globalised and... You see Manchester United's academy and and especially City and Chelsea and others stuffed with players uh, acquired from overseas. How how do you think yeah, um, and Jimmy Murphy from the fifties would have uh, viewed the world of youth football today? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I've been lucky enough, you know, having written the book and done a few interviews. That's the first time anyone's asked me that question. Now, I, I I think football's changed so much that he would have embraced it. Um, I mean, yeah, they were recruiting local players, but they were also, I mean, he went and scoured Bobby Charlton from, you know, in, in the northeast. He went down to the Midlands. Yeah. Um, they went down to London to get David Sadler, you know, um, obviously over to Ireland many times as well. Um, I think he would have embraced it, and he, he loved he loved travelling overseas and everything like that. So I think he would have been, he would have loved to go around the world and see these different um these different players the other thing uh, which was interesting and is kind of attached to this is that Jimmy's um, his coaching methods came from a good friend of his Jimmy Hogan who was involved heavily involved in the Hungarian side you know the, the great Hungarian yeah. side so that 
gives you an idea of how influenced he was by and how intrigued he was by the Continental, I think. I mean, also he was involved in the Blue Star tournament, you know, when they set that up to, mm-hmm. to get the, the players, the young players, European experience. So United were sort of, there were four runners in, in that anyway, um, and, and Jimmy was at the heart of that. And I think he would have absolutely, he would have loved and embraced it, um, I, and it's one of those great things, isn't it? If only he was here to to get his thoughts on that, because we can only sort of guess at, at that. But that that's my idea. I think he would have loved it. I mean, people have this romanticised um, idea where, of course, you would love eleven Manchester lads to be on the side, but it's just not practical. It wasn't practical then. It didn't happen then, and it's not practical now. So, right. this idea of having, you know, again, you extend that to British, and perhaps that's probably as far as it goes. But I think, you know, mm. Busby and Murphy would have embraced it, you know, the idea of um, a global team. Um, they yeah. would, I think they would have been all for it. Well, certainly the fans have. I think there's there's still, and it's in, kind of ingrained in the culture of, of the club, really, that there's a passion for players coming through the academy into the first team, um, whether they're successful or not. And, uh, I, I mean, I hope that doesn't change. I, I don't know whether you have a perspective on that. Do you think... Um, the sort of demand for instant gratification that we get in the, the world of Twitter and and YouTube um, has changed that culture of of uh, you know, being patient and waiting to see the the uh, the flower bloom. Yeah, I, th- I think it undoubtedly has. I mean, you can look at um, yeah, like I said, just look at the reactions on online. It's ridiculous that I mean, Jimmy Murphy took six or seven years for his the fruits of his labour to sort of. Um, to, to bloom really um, it, it's a strange one because I mean you asked me that question and you know let's take an example Cameron Borthwick-Jackson I thought he was one of the better prospects under Van Gaal he came in he looked like a not not brilliant but he he had a really good cross on him that's one thing that I remember he, he never let us down defensively and he had a really good cross on him and I thought at that time when you got Fosu Mensa coming through Rashford making waves it was worth sticking with, and and we're left with like you know Darmian and what you know the very average foreign players. And I don't want to get down that road of mm-hmm. you know, foreign play, but there's a truth to it there. And in cases like Darmian and and there are a couple of others in the team as well, you just think, well, you, we are better off having the younger players in. I mean, Mourinho. This is the thing about the short term managers. I mean, Moyes. It was difficult for him because he didn't get. A chance, but at least he's British and he's observed it at close quarters. You know that how United a run basically. He saw all that, and then Van Gaal should have known better because and, and really he did bring in some players as well. So I'm not beating them with that stick, but they were so short term that relying on it as a as a method is is a bit difficult. But one thing I would have thought Mourinho would have learned was that you know the Palace game last season. For a dead rubber game at the end of the season, we, you know, Old Trafford got behind those kids, and you know the way that they get behind Rashford and they forgive a mistake from the younger players, whereas they get on the back of you know the more experienced players, probably is is the right to do so. But it, it does a lot for the atmosphere in the ground and everything like that to to play these young young lads, and it's such a potential advantage I know Bothwick Jackson's probably a bad example but you, you get where I'm coming from you know like yeah. Fosu Mensa's another one I mean, and he's not even local but 
He was a young player coming through. How well he did in those first few games. Probably even more impressive in general performance than what Rashford was. Um, and you just think there's a, an opportunity there for for the crowd to get behind these players. And you, the managers see them more often than what we do, obviously. They see them every day. But I just think that there's an advantage there to be had um, that they could use. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it does tie in with the club's identity as well. And that that's the nice thing. Um, so you don't want to lose that anyway. Um, I, I don't like the idea of it being like, you know, this record that's gone on for, for so long and just including players in as a token. I don't think that we've got to that level yet, you know, just the token selection. Um, yeah. But you do wonder sometimes if it's getting close to that, don't you? So, mm. yeah, I, I, um, I have to say, I, uh, I, I may have made a side bet with uh, my podcast co-host Paul that it would be uh, broken that record under Mourinho, but that doesn't appear to be the case. And uh, um, I guess some of the younger players are struggling, well, Rashford in particular, struggling to get a regular start for the club at the moment, but. Um, uh, perhaps Mourinho hasn't um, eschewed youth in quite the way we some people thought he might do. Um, anyway, look, it was it was really great chatting to you. I, I'm uh, I'll cut this a little short only uh, to save the uh, the ears of the listeners who will be listening for hours otherwise. Do you have um do you have thoughts on the next book after this one? I'm working on two. One's pretty much finished, and the the similar themes really. I've been working on one that's the um, sort of post Ferguson evolution of, you know, what the current United identity is and how far, again, how far we've strayed from that, how how difficult it is for, you know, these managers who had shorter contracts and shorter expectancy, really, in the job, how difficult it is for them to live up to it. And also, um, another one that, I mean, that's essentially finished, we're just tying up the ends of what happens this season, you know, <laughs> we, we mm-hmm. can more or less see how it's going, uh, but, you know, the FA Cup, really doesn't make that big a difference to you know the overall pattern uh, the overall plan of it for for the last five years but another one along the same lines is the sort of the 26 year wait you know from 67 to 93 right i yeah. know i know that um there's betrayal of a legend which is phenomenal and i'm not even yes. going to touch on that but I, I do think there's room for a different perspective in terms of you know the tactics. Um, how you know how the club sort of failed under O'Farrell and and McGuinness, and how they started to rebuild, and how close they were under Doherty. And because uh, that's one thing. I mean, obviously, I've done a lot under the Doherty era. And again, there's another great book on that, Doc's Devils by Sean Egan. But this, this idea of you know the seventy six seventy seven side um, and their lost potential. You know because Docket it was sights. How far could they have gone? Could they yeah. have been the side to win the league? Um, obviously they never did it under Sexton. But this sort of stopping and starting and everything like that and it's it's compelling to work on it because there's. I'm sorry to go on about it, but no, because I've been, I've been working on it um, so so much for the last few weeks, um, it's so compelling to to look at this. You know the football in the early seventies and under O'Farrell and how the evolution of the game has changed so much, but some of the football issues are still the same. You know all this kind of regeneration within the game, and you know best was in his. Um, high of superstardom and nobody knew how to deal with him and it's sort of like all this kind of thing of you know what we see today 
the modern player, nobody knows how to deal with them because of, you know, because they're, they've got untold riches and so how do you motivate them and everything like that. And there are so many strong parallels and, and again, differences as well that it is really interesting to work on. And, I mean, I can't say that I'm going to find a conclusive answer for why we failed in those years, but um, shedding a different perspective on it is is something that I'm intending to do. And, you know, I do think United were a lot closer than than what people like to believe that we were in the, you know, because they were, they were lean years, don't get me wrong, but I mean, you look at the likes of Villa and Forrest who won European Cups after Doherty was sacked, and it does give you cause to think, you know, well, what if, mm-hmm. you know, and I know Doherty is not a, uh, a very popular figure, but I, I like him and I do have a bit of um, a soft spot for, for that side. Again, through bias once again because I've I've been fortunate enough to work with so many of them. No, that's uh, that's great. Well, they sound like two fascinating books. And uh, the man who kept the red flag flying high, uh, he's getting great reviews at the moment. Um, so congratulations on that. Um, hopefully selling well. And uh, and if it's not. Uh, head over to Amazon where um, it's available in hardcover um, and I presume other bookstores. Um, all, all good bookstores. All good bookstores. Well, Wayne, thank you very much for joining us. Um, congratulations again on the new book and uh, I look forward to, to reading the, uh, the post-Fergie um, uh, digest and, and the uh, look at the mid-70s and Tommy Doherty. I, I think they'll be fa- two fascinating subjects to cover as well. Thanks a lot. I really look forward to reading that. That sounds like a really interesting read about someone who's just invaluable in United's history. All right, let's uh, let's leave it there and move on to two games this week. We've got um, midweek game against Bournemouth. Mm-hmm. And um, who are, um, well, 38 points now, and that should be enough, I think. That's 10 points ahead, ahead of Southampton. It would be absolutely extraordinary. I think all the models are showing 37 as probably probably being safe. So, you know, given, given how little their budget is, um, and uh, size of their squad and all that. Another very fine performance from Bournemouth this season. A young English manager, Eddie Howe, um, who will still be called a young English manager when he's on to his 12th English club in 10 years' time. <laughs> like Jesse, Jesse um, Lingard, the perennial young player. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, He'll have retired and he'll still be young, um, uh, dabbing his way into retirement. Um, so, look, um, uh, game against Bournemouth, uh, it, it doesn't mean much other than for placings at this point. Um, uh, where, where, what do you think about this one? You know, down to the south coast in midweek, so an absolute bitch for the fans who are going. Um, and uh, and probably not ideal to have a game midweek before the FA Cup game at the weekend. The thing is, the weather forecast for the middle of this week is absolutely stunning. So maybe the fans that have got to travel should try and get there early and have, make it, have a day out by the seaside, because you know, that could be nice. Um, you know, you said that Bournemouth are probably safe, but it's not just about points, is it? They are, they are, like you say, 10 points ahead of Southampton, although technically Southampton have a game in hand. Um, but there's one, two, three, four, five, six teams yeah. between the two. So it would be, yeah, yeah. you know, a momentous collapse at this point. Like they would have to get so, so, it w- so. It would, momentous. although, you know, Bournemouth down to West Ham in 15th is one one game, basically. And West Ham have two games in hand. So, but, but, you know, it's uh, there are a lot of teams for sure. It, it would be stunning for them to go down. And I, I, th- I think actually what will probably happen, given how bad, I mean, 
Southampton were very good against Chelsea for a half and then very, very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suspect they're going to go down and Stoke and, and Mark Hughes will have managed to relegate two clubs in one season. That's really, really good work. impressive. Um, you just, should just like get him. There's a vacancy at West Brom. should get him in there as well. Just just pop across to West Brom. Just for a laugh. Relegate all three teams. Pub quiz. Um, yeah. No, I mean, so Bournemouth's uh, recent home record, as you would expect for a team that is right bang in mid-table, which they is what that is where they actually are, rather than as part of the relegation story. They're really part of the mid-table story at this point. Um, so taking it back to the middle of uh, February, when they lost away 4-1 to Huddersfield. After that, they at home only, they've drawn with Newcastle, got heavily beaten by Spurs, um, beaten West Brom. Well, it must be a seriously good team if they can beat West Brom at home. Um, and drawn with Crystal Palace. So like, not particularly good results. Um, United, I mean, this shouldn't even be a, this, this should be no contest. This should be a repeat of last season, a comfortable 3-1 We'll see. We'll see how this team react to that defeat. Generally speaking, yeah. there haven't been. Have we lost two games in a row in the league this season? I'm not sure we have. Not that I can draw. No, to there mind was that anyway. period in December where we drew three games in a row. Yeah. But, um, no, I, I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Bournemouth. They've switched between flat back four and a three at the back quite a bit this season and played three against Liverpool at the weekend and it really didn't work and, and uh, Ake and Cook and Francis looked all out of place I'd say um, so I'm going to assume they go back to a back four for for this game and um, you know and they've got some neat players uh, they're, they're playing 97 year old Jermaine Defoe up front I don't know, we'll see if he, I mean, he played most of the game at Liverpool so he may not uh, start uh, Josh King lots of Pace, um, ex United player, of course. Um, Jordan Ibe hasn't quite lived up to the fifteen million pounds that they spent on him. I'd say, but he's done all right. So it used to be a lot know, of they're, money. They're good, good, solid team, and um, they got some decent players. And uh, you know, they're good value for mid table. But of course, this is a type of side United should absolutely smash. But it's, it's hard to say that's definitely going to happen this time around. Yeah, maybe a reaction from Liverpool will be. Um, will be forthcoming, or maybe they'll all be looking at the semi-final and going, hmm, I don't want to get an injury. Yeah, talking of injuries, nice to, that Callum Wilson has been back in the team and back scoring goals, given that you know he had a horrible injury last season after he'd started the season, or maybe even it was the season before now. Um, but you know he, he's kind of struggled with his fitness, and it's good that he's he's got more more Premier League goals than he's ever got before this season. He was um, absolutely vital to them when they came up uh, from the Championship. Um, and he's he's kind of he struggled to prove that he could do it at the Premier League level, but he's basically been able to prove that this season. Um, and, and also, Josh King is having a decent career because you know we enjoyed Josh King in the United Youth Team, didn't we? He was the you know it was it was a a good player to have around, and he clearly had some something. And this is about the level you'd kind of expect, but it's a, it's a pretty decent level. Uh, so I think that that'll do for the Bournemouth game. Because really, the big yeah, game. Yeah, let's talk about Spurs and the semi final. This is the big game, isn't it? This is this is the one we we, you know, you, you've said a few times in this episode, I think, and certainly over the last few weeks, maybe winning a trophy. It's a big, big, big maybe at this point, isn't it? Well, it is big maybe. The uh, the other semi final is Chelsea and Southampton. Chelsea, who are not having a great end of the season. I mean, they were abysmal against Southampton um, for what was it, 60 minutes until they score 65 minutes? Yeah. Uh, you know, just wandering, some of the players wandering around looking at their shoes uh, and uh, 
So you know, may, maybe they'll be up for the big games. Um, um, so, but there's definitely a path through if United can beat Spurs, who who are are, um, are pretty good at home, but got <laughs> just so totally dominated by City um, at the weekend. You know, you you can you can see their vulnerabilities. It's going to be a massive game, and United were very poor against Spurs at Wembley earlier in the season. It's it's strange comparing United and Spurs this season, isn't it? Because, you know, we're ahead of them in the league. So, therefore, we're yeah. having a better season than them. Therefore, we're a better team than them, right? Or is that right? I'm not sure it is. I mean, they've scored more goals than us this season. Not by much, but two, two more goals than us. Um, which actually, you know, given that Liverpool and City have both scored substantially more, uh, it's not so impressive that they scored 65 goals, but we've seen that Harry Kane is extremely keen to be credited with as many of those goals as possible. <laughs> yes, that that joke got old quite quickly. Oh but, uh, well, I'm not on Twitter, yeah. so it's still it's still new for me. Um, but yeah, uh, the their their form leading into the City game was very good. I mean, they lost to Juve, but oh, that was. That, that was, was really tight. Just yeah. brutal. And, and they were probably the superior side over the two legs. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then since then, you know, they, won, they smashed Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, finally lifting that that hoodoo. And like you said, the, the, the game between us and them at Wembley earlier this season, I mean, United were spectacularly awful in that game, but Tottenham were also absolutely excellent. Was it 2-0 in the end? It was one of those games where it was 2-0, but it could have been 7 or something. Y- yeah, 2 two. Two nil, two one. Did we get one back? Maybe. Anyway, it was it was a game which we were comfortably, comfortably the the worst side. Hold on, I'm, I have to look it up at this point because uh, my curious. Yeah, two nil, two nil Spurs. The game we got one back in was the three one at the back end of last season, the last game at White Hart Lane right. when Rooney scored. Right. Remember. Right. When, remember so look, it's going to be. It's, this is a massive game, and and what so is is. Uh, is Jose going to stick with four three three, and uh, which which is the one he should do? I mean, you know, notwithstanding a poor performance from from uh, Pogba, which you, you mentioned earlier at the weekend, um, it's the one. It's the formation that offers United the best possible balance. Uh, is he going to do that? Will Spurs play three at the back or four at the back? I mean, they've mostly been playing four at the back recently, um, but they've switched between them um, at times this season. Will they play? Um, I mean, most of the Spurs side picks itself, but um, it's, uh, it's Son or Lamella on the left-hand side, and, and you know Lamella was pretty pretty poor against City, got hauled off, but probably twenty minutes later than he should have been. So lots of lots of big questions, I think, and um, I don't I don't um, uh, imagine United running away with this because Spurs are a very good side. Yeah, I, the the ways we've had success against Spurs in the Mourinho Pochettino era has been to play over the top of them, essentially. Which mm-hmm. Actually, City did for the Gabriel Jesus goal. That's actually pretty much the way that United have had success against any decent side. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's low block and play slightly direct. I mean, the, the Liverpool game, the Arsenal game, they weren't quite like that. But yeah, the, you're right. Well, no. The Arsenal, what the Arsenal game at home where. At the Emirates, where they had 31 shots, <laughs> yeah, exactly. around our box all the time. That one, exactly. Um, the uh, relying on this power of narrative to win games, um, but so you would imagine that 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 will be how we set up, and and so that would you'd think he might go, he might drop Matter again and go Lingard, 
um, in that front three. Yes, I think that's that's quite likely. Uh, and then, so then you'd have Matic, Herrera, presumably like McTominay's been forgotten now. So, and and rightly so, by the way. Like, but Herrera, who has he kind of played okay against City and then not great against West Brom. So, I don't even know if you want. Do you want? to play him against Spurs, but you, you can't leave, like, obviously, you can't have Pogba and Matic in a two in that game. I mean, I, I guess... No, no, because they're going to be up against, I mean, there'll be Dembele and Dyer in the holding for Spurs, but, you know, and Ericsson and Ali sort of dancing, and, and I guess Son sort of dancing around in front of them. So it's, um, this game is definitely going to be one loss in central midfield. And that, that is worrying for United, like because winning or losing games in central midfield has not been great for us, even though in the last two seasons we've substantially upgraded that position. It's still this Mourinho side does not have. I mean, so much of it is form dependent. Matic has looked imperious sometimes and woeful others. And actually, you could say the same about Pogba as well. So there, there is there is a huge question mark that that I don't know how you analyze this without just being completely reductive, but. So much of the result of this game depends on which version of United's players turns up. Not so much what version of Mourinho turns up, because we, broadly speaking, we know he hasn't, he's parked the bus, as it were, once this season. He's likely to play low block direct, but that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. You can you can do that well or you can do that badly. And if we do that well, we've got a chance. But we've equally got this almost I would say an identical chance of we see us doing that badly and getting absolutely hammered mm. so who plays for United I mean most of the team I guess picks itself but it's central defense that's the interesting one mm. isn't it um assuming assuming we have Valencia at young fullback and he doesn't go mental and, and drop De Gea for some reason <laughs> um they pick themselves and and then which which two of Lindelof Sil, uh, Smalling and and Baye is it going to be? Well, I would a hundred percent go Baye Lindelof, and he went Baye Lindelof for um, no, he went Smalling Lindelof for City. Yeah, he did. In fact, he hasn't done Baye Lindelof, has he? So he's he's been no, and Baye's barely fit. I mean, you know, two, two years into his United career, there's a lot. Of, I mean, he's obviously United's best defender by absolutely miles. Mm. But also hardly ever fit, which is a pattern, of course, for United defenders over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, so maybe we could say then it'll be Smalling and Lindelof, but it's just very upsetting that Chris Smalling's almost like got a guaranteed start. I don't see anything about his performances that would warrant him having a guaranteed start in these big games. And actually, I have to say, this one of the, the defensive Mourinho he does quite often seem to see this and, and there's been quite a lot of times where you've expected him to do like pull off a n- nightmare like picking Fellaini over Pogba or whatever and he doesn't really do that very often so maybe we will see a Bailey Lindelof here but it, it seems like a long shot I think it'll be Smalling and probably Lindelof I guess or maybe maybe Smalling yeah. and Bailey so, so what are your predictions? So Smalling and Bailey and then in midfield that one we've picked and like yeah front three Alexis Lingard Lukaku, which I don't think is the worst shout. Although I, I do feel like every time we talk about United's attack, I want to hold up a banner that says we should not just be accepting the fate of Anthony Martial and Marcus Rashford. Like we should. No, that's right. It's, it's yeah. so stupid. I mean, like, like we had a little exchange on the WhatsApp. Lots of rumours about Martial wanting to leave. If I was Anthony Martial, I would definitely leave Manchester United this summer. There's no point in him being there. It's 
there's there's plenty of teams that are currently more successful that will pay him just as much and play him every week. That's a very sad state of affairs. Um, Mourinho's managed to, well, he, he compressed two players into one with you know, getting Martial and Rashford to job share. Now he's compressed three players into one in buying Sanchez. So it, it doesn't and, and seem like the optimal use of United's talent. <clears throat> Um, the one player, and, uh, the one and, and, player that he's, the one player that he's combined them into is just Alexis Sanchez. Basically, yeah. Uh, who hasn't justified that yet? Um, he had a decent half against City, but he actually uh, only touched the ball eleven times. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, he's very effective with those eleven touches. Um, uh, but yeah, it wasn't wasn't you know. So I, I think uh, I, I made the point on Twitter that he could and should be doing more for a player of his talent. You know. Um, no doubt. If he can, he, if he can make that much of an impact in eleven touches, he needs the ball more often. He needs to do that more often because it's not been that often since he joined United. Maybe we'll see the best of him next season. Okay, well, look, we're near to wrapping up the show. There's a couple other things I, I thought we were going to mention. Um, United won the under-18s league this week, beating City. Yes, yes, fantastic stuff. Especially given, you know, all the 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 hand-wringing that's gone on over the past few years about City taking over in terms of youth development in Manchester. This is a great sign. And and, and also because I think a lot of the very, very talented under-18s have gone up to under-23s, haven't they? Um, so, uh, well, and the first team indeed. So, so really, really impressive and, and well done to them. Yeah. And and look, I would uh, I would caution having seen plenty of youth football over the years, I'd caution against reading too much into one season and saying, oh, this means that United's youth production line is right and we're going to be following loads of those players into the first team because it just doesn't it doesn't work like that. Um, and uh, there are definite cycles in youth football depending on the age cohort you have. Actually, this is a reasonably young cohort of under-18s. Um, so, look, it's, it's very positive. I wouldn't say suddenly... Um, all of those players are, are going to be making it into the first team picture, um, but much more positive than two years ago. Then, uh, as you said, you know people were very worried about United having taken the ball, uh, their eye off the ball when it came to youth football. And uh, the final thing I wanted to talk about this week: United apparently shelving plans to expand Old Trafford. Um, have have done a feasibility study and think it would be too expensive, and they'd have to shut down the stand for a couple of years, uh, which is a shame. I think. Wow, that's. Feels a bit yeah, short-sighted. It is a shame because something does need to be done. Uh, but perhaps it's just, you know, about timing and all that kind of stuff and it's the last thing the club need at the moment to have a half-empty stadium and all that kind of stuff. So maybe maybe that's got something to do with it. Uh, something that's much less short-sighted. Did this happen this week? It might have happened while um, I was off poorly, but uh, I don't think we've talked about it on a podcast. United, some actual, proper, genuine good news. Um, I've applied to the Premier League, uh, the the governing bodies, the relevant governing bodies to have a women's team uh, enter formal competition, which is, I mean, you could say it's overdue and that, that's fair enough. It, it, it certainly is, but, and it should never have been scrapped in the first place. It was part of the Glazonomics era, but but absolutely fantastic news that they're going to spend some money on this. Yeah, um, the way I read between the lines of what their statement. First, excellent news, and and we've we've talked about this in the past. Um, uh, it's uh, not too big a congratulations because it, it should have been in place years and years ago and should never have been shut down. But excellent news. Um, the way I read between the lines of the statement is that United are not going to be spending huge amounts of money on this sort of city. Um, this will be a path from the women's youth football teams that United do run 
um, into a first team and they're applying to Premier League Two or Super League Two or whatever it's called. Um, and yeah. uh, so, so we'll see. I, I don't expect United to be suddenly become a dominant force in women's football, but it's important that we do have a club and last stand out in sort of amongst the major European powers is now Real Madrid. Anyway, I and you think I, I think more than anything. Uh, girls growing up supporting United should be able to dream about playing for them. Yeah, like that's this. It's almost as simple as that for me. Anyway, uh, so before we end the show in time-honored rantcast fashion, let's make a total between us of four incorrect predictions about what the score in these two games will be. <laughs> did we make predictions last week? I can't remember now. So uh, I think United yeah, will, we did. Um, I predicted will uh, draw at Bournemouth. Let's call it two all. Exciting game. Bit open. Uh, and oh God, I kind of think we might lose to Spurs, but I'm not going to predict that because that's just wrong. So I'm going to predict a two-one victory in the FA Cup semi-final. Um, I think that we'll beat Bournemouth by one goal, so like two-one maybe. Uh, and I think I'm just going to go with what I actually think is going to happen, not what I want to happen, and predict that we are going to lose to Tottenham Hotspur at Wembley. Uh, also two-one in the other direction. Ouch. Of all right, well, we'll, uh, we'll record but, another know, one of these this not... week, next week, um, assuming yeah, I make it back from the... the US in one piece and don't crash well, and burn honest, as I nearly did last time. Not, not <laughs> If quite. you don't, I'll find someone else to do it with. So yeah, well, that's true. We'll that's get true. a show out. It's, it's what you'd have wanted. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think you should uh, you should probably get Housen on. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. That was a, a, a fun episode of the Rankcast complaining about Jose Mourinho and Manchester United. It would be lovely if we've got a celebratory podcast next weekend. Let's see what happens. Come on, you Reds! The Rankcast is a crowdfunded project, which means we don't have any advertising. Uh, we just rely on the listeners for their support. That's listeners like you. Um, for various different levels, you can get various different rewards if you choose to uh, contribute something to the show at patreon.com slash rankcast. Um, and any amount is really appreciated. Even if uh, you don't want to contribute a large amount, just a dollar a month. If all our listeners covered a, uh, paid us a dollar a month, well, we could do a lot more rank casts, let's just say. Um, but anyway, uh, thanks to everyone who does back. If you back above uh, $5, uh, plus VAT a month, then you get access to uh, bonus content, which we do after every episode. And this week, our bonus content was about great FA Cup semi-final moments. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful goals ever. Certainly, from a United fans' perspective, any of the kind of, okay, so the defending's pretty terrible, but who cares when it looks that good? And after the game, after the game, Gary Newbon says to Alex Ferguson, well, that's not what you would have wanted, is it? Extra time and I think a man sent off. Yeah, because King got sent off. Extra time a man sent off. And Ferguson just looks at him and says, look, who's to know what's going to happen in football, Gary? It could all blow up in our faces at the end of the day. But can you forget moments like this? Our supporters will be talking about that for years. Here we are talking about it. The players yeah. will be talking about it for years. That's what football's about, trying to reach peaks and climaxes to a season, which we're doing at the moment. We're in a final. We've got something in the bank for ourselves. And now we go and try and win this league now. Oh, did he ever? Un- Magic. Underrated orator Alex Ferguson. Just. Be- <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've tried the new dad. It doesn't no. work. Can we have Fergie back, please? <laughs>